0: The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. What did Jesus and His life and His ministry through the Gospel of Mark We saw all that he did, we uh, read much of what he said, we talked about the person of Christ and his ministry, and we talked about those who were his first disciples, though he had called to follow him, and they shared that three-year period of life with Christ, and that. The end of Christ's life, though, their life continued because they trusted Him as the Messiah, the one that was sent by God. And one of those individuals that was with Jesus during that time, one of the closest ones to Jesus, we like to say that He was a part of the inner circle, the three that were with Jesus in many instances where the other's disciples weren't, was the Apostle John. John defined as the one of the sons of thunder. He and his brother uh, were described that way. John, the one who was uh, there leaning against Jesus' breath the evening before he was crucified when Jesus was having that last meal with them that we celebrate and call communion. John, the one that was there at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified, there with uh, Jesus' mother Mary, and he was charged with caring for Mary after Jesus had been crucified. One who was with Jesus in some of the most intimate times later had written the Gospel of John that tells us many things that Jesus said and did that are not contained in the other Gospels, and it was very clear that John had written that Gospel, that he wanted to to drive home the point that Jesus was not just a prophet, Jesus was not just another man, Jesus was not just a great teacher, Jesus was not just an example to us, but Jesus himself was God in the flesh, sent by the Father so that we might have relationships with God. And John later, about 40 or 50, maybe 60 years after that time, had had fled Jerusalem when Rome had come in and they sacked the city. And we believe that John went up to the area of Ephesus, somewhere up there, and continued his pastoral ministry. And what he had learned when he got there was that there were a lot of schisms that were taking place within the church. False teaching had crept into the church, and many of those believers there were discouraged because they were seeing some of their other believers follow along after these false teachings. And so John writes this first letter to them to encourage them, not only to be encouraged as others may fall away, but to warn them also that there are false teachers, and every false teacher wants to deny who Jesus really is, and that is God. And so John writes this letter to this early church, and he gives us four purposes in the letter as to why he is writing to them. Some of these same reasons are reasons that I... I feel led to teach through the book of 1 John, because in our culture today, and especially in our church culture even, some of the things that were affecting this early century, first century church are continuing to affect, and even more so in our day to day. And so, as your pastor, man, I want us to be warned, to be keen on these things. But the first reason that he writes this letter is found in verse 4 of chapter 1, where he says this, he says, guys, I am writing these things to you so that your joy may be complete. He's writing to him and saying, listen, I want your joy to be complete. And we know there's a difference between happy and joy, right? You see, I can be happy, but that's momentary. As soon as the circumstances change, I'm no longer happy. Uh, Some of you were happy last night about midnight when Georgia finally closed the books on the game last night. But you might be sad next week, right? It can ebb and flow. It can change. That's happiness. But God tells us, and John in particular is going to tell us that, listen, in all of life's circumstances, there is a joy that you can have that I desire for you to have that far supersedes any happiness that you might have momentarily. And so, John's writing is specifically, he's saying, listen, these things I'm going to write to you about, I'm writing to you so that your joy might be full. Another way of saying that is, is, contained in all the theology about Christ and who He is that I'm writing to you believers of, I'm writing this to you because this is what is going to give you joy that surpasses any circumstantial happiness that you might have. The second reason that he states as a purpose is found in chapter 2, verse 1. He writes to them, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So he's writing to them, hoping that through the content of his writings, that, that they may not sin. However... If you do sin, how many of you sin? Thank you, an honest room. We do, right? And here's the good news. He says, well, I don't want you to. God the Father doesn't want you to. But when you do, whether it's an external rebellion or it's an inward attitude that, that is a sin, that's not that falls short of what God's intention is, that when you do, I want you to know that you have an advocate. Now, an advocate is a judicial term. It's that person that stands there with qualifications in front of the judge, and he is an advocate on your behalf. So that when your sin accuses you, when Satan accuses you, Jesus is standing there next to the Father as the advocate, the only one that's qualified. And he slams down his hand on the gavel and he says, no, he's acquitted because of what I have done for him. He's covered under my blood. Aren't you glad that when you do sin, aren't you glad that when you do sin, that you have an advocate there? You see, the enemy's trying to tell you some tell some of you today, because you know what you did yesterday. You know what you did last week. You know what you did last month. You know what you did last year. You know what you did twenty years ago, and the enemy's still trying to accuse you of it. Jesus wants you to know that. Listen, there, I'm your advocate, and I'm standing there next to the Father, and you're covered in my blood, and it's an eternal blood that has forgiven you for all of eternity. Somebody say hallelujah to that. Isn't that good stuff. The third reason that he states that he's writing this letter is found in verse 26 of this same chapter. And he's writing to tell them that, listen, I want to protect you from these false teachers. And can I tell you something, guys? There's so much stuff in our so-called churches today even. Forget the world and the message is there. There's so much that's gone away from the Word of God to opinions, pop psychology. We have the gurus that we love to follow around and and like everything they post. But listen, there's so much junk out there that we've gotten so far away from the Word of God. And so he's pronouncing to them in verse 26, he says this. He says, I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Now, there are some who intentionally try to deceive, and there are others who just ignorantly deceive. Peter and Paul also warn believers about those who were in their midst, some who came out from among you, they say. Some who were never among them, but come in and they see it away for, as Paul describes it, selfish gain, need another Learjet, Whatever. And they're deceiving and leaving the sheep. They're leading the sheep away. And John's writing, listen, guys, it's not so much that I want you to follow me. John's intention is not to say, hey, listen to everything I say and it's all right. John's got the heart of the Father as a shepherd for the body and says, listen, these things, if you follow after them, they will lead to ruin and destruction in your life and others around you. You see, false doctrine always leads to destruction. Always. And so John's writing, he says, man, I want to warn you about these individuals. Lastly, he writes to him in chapter 5, verse 13, and he wants them to know that they have eternal life. He says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Notice the word there, no. In other words, He wants them to be assured that they have eternal life. Two parts to that. Number one is to cause them to reflect and say, have you really trusted Christ for your salvation? Or are you trusting Christ and other things you can do for your salvation? Because that's not going to lead to eternal life. Are you trusting Christ for your salvation and Him alone? Have you fully placed your trust in Him? Have you recognized that He did something for you that you could never do for yourself, and that's pay the penalty of your sins, and it's all because of what He has done that you're saved, not of your own works, that, that, that you have eternal life. And then secondly, He's warning them to know that when you have trusted Christ That day that you became born again, that day that you were regenerated, that day when God did that work in you to save you, there's absolutely nothing that anybody in all of creation or anything in all of creation can ever do to undo that. Can you say hallelujah to that? That you have eternal life. And He wants us to walk in that and grow in that. Now read with me as I begin in verse 1. We're going to cover the first four verses briefly this morning just to begin to get into this. John begins to write in verse 1. He says, What was from the beginning and what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes what we have observed and what we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, he's talking about Jesus here, and he describes him as the word of life. Verse 2, he says, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Father, I pray that as we look intently at these verses this morning. God, I pray that you'd do two things for us today. God, that we would be secure in our eternal life in who Jesus is. And God, I pray that you would weed out anything in our lives that would be hindering our fellowship with you or our fellowship with one another. Lord, we pray that your word would do that by the Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have you noticed in this first verse, he begins talking about Jesus, and he makes a statement here who was from the beginning. Now, there's a reason John's saying that Jesus was from beginning, the beginning, because one of the schisms or one of the false doctrines that was being espoused in that day as it is today was that Jesus really didn't come in the flesh. That God really didn't manifest Himself in the flesh. And the reason they were teaching that was because they held to a philosophy that was called Gnosticism. Now, here's what Gnosticism taught. Gnosticism taught that everything that is physical, everything that's matter is evil. But everything that's spirit is good. And so it would have been impossible for God to have manifest himself in Christ and that that Jesus was God all the way from the beginning of beginnings that he existed from all of eternity. It was impossible for him to take on human flesh because that would make him evil or corrupt. The other thing that they taught, that salvation really wasn't through Jesus, but salvation was through a deeper, higher spiritual knowledge of, of this secret that can be gained, and only a select few gained that secret, and they really attain salvation, and it's through the ascent of knowledge. And see, there are those that are teaching the same thing today, that Jesus really didn't come in the flesh there are those that teach or espouse that Jesus didn't exist from all eternity. As a matter of fact, Jesus is just one kind of manifestation of God in three distinct different ways, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But they're all one, and God just revealed Himself at different times in different ways. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he has existed from all beginning. Now, one of the things that Gnosticism led to, and this is what we really see in our culture today, especially in the church, is that what you do in the flesh really doesn't matter. What you do with your body really doesn't matter because what really counts is is the spiritual realm. And therefore, we take on the idea, as Paul confronted in the book of Romans, where, where he makes a statement that, listen, the more we sin, the more we glorify God, because the forgiveness is there even greater. And then he asks a question, does that mean we should go on sinning so that God would get more glory? Heavens, no. You see, sometimes the idea is that, you know, it really doesn't matter what I do in the body. I got my ticket with Jesus. I'm okay with him. He's okay with me. So, I'm going to go out and live my life the way that I want to live participate in, in things that, that, that I just want to do because what really matters is I got my ticket and I'm okay with Jesus. But you Remember the great commission that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 28? He says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them, and then what's the last part of that? Somebody shout it out to me. And teaching them to what? Observe or obey all that I've commanded. And so, this Gnostic idea led to all type of licentiousness. And my goodness, we have it in the body of Christ today. We have the idea that we, we just get our ticket, we, we fashion services the way that we want them to do, and, and as long as it's entertaining, and as long as it makes me feel good, then, then that's all that really matters. Just go out and live your life the way you want to because Jesus has got everything okay. That's not what Jesus taught And so John's calling him back to that. And he says, in the beginning, he's always existed. He didn't just come on the scene in the incarnation. Some scripture that tells us that, that points to that, is, is Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12. Listen to this. He says, you are from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One. Micah prophesying about Jesus who is to come, the the Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah, he says, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, the beginning, the ancient of days. Of course, John states in his gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What beginning? The beginning before all beginnings, before creation even itself, as Paul outlines in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. He says this. He says, he is the invis- he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that doesn't mean that he didn't exist until he was born. But He's the firstborn of all creation, and we go on to see what Paul says. He says, For Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, and all things were created through Him and for Him. All things. You realize this morning that you were created for Him? Does that blow your mind like it does me? That... that one of the purposes that God has for you and your life is that he created you for him. An object of his love and his affection, God's created you for him. So if you're here this morning and you think, man, I have no purpose. What is my purpose? I have no meaning. You can start right there. God's created you for him. Tell him thank you for that this morning. He's created you for him. You see, He existed all of eternity, and, and, and John here says that He existed as the Word of God. That, that word, Word, is the Greek word logos. It has the idea and the understanding when we look at Jesus being expressed or explained as the Word. John uses it here in 1 John and he uses it also in his Gospel of John. The Logos, the, the Word of God. And, and what John has in mind is the expression of God and who He is has been now made manifest in human form so that you might know God and know who He is. Somebody put it this way. Somebody wrote and said, Logos means the, the eternal expression of the divine God. You want to know what, G, what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God's character is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God's will is? Look at Jesus. Somebody else put it this way. that This word logos has the idea that the self-revealing of God to man. I love it when people said, I found God, and I remind them, you didn't find God. (laughs) God sought you out, and he found you. Isn't that good to know? God sought you out and He found you? Jesus said this. He said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. One God, three persons, we call that the Trinity. Now, I was thinking about what John wrote this week, and, and I was thinking in my mind, boy, wouldn't it have been neat to have heard Jesus? I mean, really heard Him? You know, literally hurt him. Wouldn't it have been pretty cool to have to have literally touched him, or wouldn't it have been neat to have been John there at the Last Supper and lean your head on his, on his chest as you're having the last meal together? Wouldn't it have been neat to to watch him miraculously perform the signs that he did, the wonders that he did, and, and be there when he hollered in Lazarus' team, come forward! and here comes Lazarus coming out of the grave and you saw him raising from the dead. I think about that. We were in Jerusalem uh, this last summer group in Israel and it was pretty neat to go and stand there on the southern steps of the temple and, and think, man, Jesus stood here pretty neat to go by the Sea of Galilee and, and perhaps in the very location there on the shore, realize that it may have been this, this very place where Jesus restored Peter after he denied him three times. It, it was pretty cool to go into the Garden of Gethsemane and realize that, man, somewhere in this area, maybe I'm standing right here where Jesus knelt down and said, God, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But the thought hit me in all of that, and I said, you know what? that does not compare to being touched by the resurrected Christ. That, that God touched you and he touched me. At some point in our life, it's as if he put his finger on your heart. and said, you don't know me, but, but, but I want you to know me. Right now you're separated from me because of your sin. But I want to remove that so that you can have a relationship with me and be one with me and the Father be in fellowship with me. It's that old hymn that, that I love. And I know this is a different generation, but I'm, I'm going to sing the words to it. Said old hymn, he touched me. And the writer writes this and he says, Something happened. And now I know he touched me and made me whole. The words in the hymn go, shackled by a heavy burden. Beneath the load of guilt and shame. You see, all of us were shackled by a heavy burden. Beneath the load of guilt and shame. But Jesus loved us so much that He sought us out, and He touched us, saved us and transformed our life. Y'all got to get Pentecostal. Amen. All right? Amen. If that doesn't make you float or float, something's wrong with you. See, it amazes me because I know myself. I know what a bonehead I am. I know how wretched I am. That that he would love me and extend his grace to me in that fashion. Not only the day that I was saved, but even now. Even today. This eternal life that he talks about here in this verse. He, He says, I've come that you might have eternal life, Jesus said. But, but John writes and he says here in verse 2, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare it to you, the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us, eternal life. Life eternal. So that after this life is over, there's the hope of having eternal life that it doesn't just end when that day comes. But it's eternal life, and this this life that, that we have in Jesus is described several different ways in Scripture. Let me read to you the way they are. In John chapter 6, verse 36, Jesus talks about him being our sustenance in this life. He says, I am the bread of life. What does he mean by that? I'm the bread of life. Meaning that if you're looking for life, if you want to really have life, then He's got to be what you feast on, man. He's the bread of life. He's the one that gives us sustenance. He's the one that gives us meaning and life and sustains us in life. There's a difference between living and life. Follow me. There's a distance between living and life. Living just simply means that your heart's still beating and you're breathing. Living means that you, that you go through life from one experience to the other. Some experiences are high, other experiences are low, and you get to the end of it, and you're like, what? That didn't mean anything to me. But life in Him gives us meaning. Life in Him gives us fulfillment. You see, I can live, but man, I don't know about you, I don't want to just live. If living is all there is, take me out tomorrow, baby, because life is full of stuff, Right? Can can anybody say amen to that? But he he describes this life not only as him being the bread of life, but he describes it as an abundant life, and he doesn't mean that I'm going to give you all kinds of stuff. He says, "I, I, I want you to have life in me and have it, abundantly to the fullest extent. He says in John ten ten, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's a quality of life and it has nothing to do with what our mindset as a quality of life is. And that usually is on our Western culture. The more things we have, the more abundant life is. He says, no, even if you don't have any of those things, man, I've come that you might have abundant life. Yes. You're not going to find that anywhere else. I love life. I do. But the older I get, the more that I kind of come to the place that says, you know what? If that were all there is, I'm ready to check out. I'm ready to to leave tomorrow because I know what's awaiting me. Because life is tough, right? Some of you in the last weeks have had some devastating news. Some of you will have some devastating news in the next coming weeks. I'm not a prophet. That's just the way life is. He says, listen, even in that, there's life in me and it's to the fullest. John describes it in this letter in chapter 5, verse 2. says, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Put it bluntly, he says, listen, man, if you ain't got Jesus, you don't have life. If you're here this morning and you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. Eternal life. Not only hope in this life, but in the life to come. The last thing I want to share with you this morning is kind of the last point. I have some other things. I'm going to skip over them. But I think it's very important. What what he states here in verse 3. He says again, he says, listen, I, 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 we've, we've seen, this is what we've seen and heard. We also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. Two things, life in Jesus and fellowship in Jesus. Fellowship. He says, I'm writing these things to you, man, because I, I, I want you to have life and then I also want you to have fellowship with us and I want you to have fellowship with God. Do you realize fellowship is not Krispy Kreme donuts and coffee? Somebody brought me Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> Amen. Booker likes Krispy You had Krispy Kreme? Yeah. Okay, he loves Chick-fil-A too. It's not Krispy Kreme and donuts. By the way, thank you for bringing me the Krispy Kreme, but I exercised discipline and gave them to my gym trainer. She's going to eat them. See, that comes and goes. When the Bible talks about fellowship, it has the idea of having an experiential type of relation with someone that we have something in common with. Now, he's not talking about both of us being the fan of this football team or that football team. He's not talking about us having commonality in the kind of music we like or the kind of things that we like to do. Yeah, that just it literally is coincidental sometimes. We, we share in those relations. But, you know, I've, I've seen that I travel all over the place. And wherever I've traveled, it seems that on every venture that I take, I meet someone that they don't even really have to tell me. But as we engage in conversation, it's instinctively, I know, they're a Christ follower, too. They they follow Jesus, too. And you see, the one thing that, that we have in common in fellowship in the body of Christ is that we all follow Jesus, that He's at the center of that, where we may not have any other commonality at all. We may not like the same things. We may not like to do the same things. We may be from a different place. You may be from the north. I may be from the south. You may be this or I may be that. You may be black. I may be white. None of that matters. What matters is that we have the oneness in Christ, and that's what we share in fellowship. He says here, That you might have fellowship with us because we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. There's a link here. Let me reverse what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you're not in fellowship with the Father and Son, then, then you can't be in fellowship with me. That's not being crass. It's not being ugly. He's just saying the only way to have real fellowship is to have that in common. And if you don't have it with the Father, then we can't have it together. And the other thing is true as well, that if we're not in fellowship with one another, then it's going to impede our fellowship with the Father, with Jesus. My wife loves drama. I didn't say she creates drama. I said my wife loves drama. I don't really care for drama. I love bluegrass music. My wife loves Neil Diamond. (laughs) I love gardening. She doesn't sweat. The point I'm getting at is that if we based our fellowship on what we had in common, it just wouldn't exist. We're just different, right? Amen. Amen. Very different. But I've examined our marriage now 36 years that we've been married and and we know Christ, that if we didn't have fellowship with Him, we really wouldn't have anything together in marriage. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying I I, I love mom. I think she's neat, she's unique, all that kind of stuff. She thinks I need her, so she puts up with me. (laughs) What I'm saying is what really puts glue to the marriage is a fellowship that we have with Him, and it's the sharing in that together. What puts the glue in this local church body is, is not that we're f- living in the same general locality. It's not that we like things a certain way and everybody agrees on that because, trust me, everybody doesn't, and I hear about it. What makes us be in fellowship, or what will make us be in fellowship is we have a fellowship with him, and that becomes our conversation. That becomes the center of it. That becomes a glue. It doesn't mean that we don't still talk about football, but that's not nearly as important as who Jesus is and what he's doing in our lives. You want to have real fellowship in a church body? Get closer to Jesus. You want to have real fellowship in your marriage? Get closer to Jesus. You want to have real fellowship with your kids? Then get closer to Jesus. And it's not that we try to get them closer to Jesus. We draw closer to Him. You see, I can't draw anybody closer to Jesus. I can encourage The only person I could draw closer to Jesus is me by the power of the Holy Spirit and yielding to Him. That's it. He says, listen, I want you to have fellowship with me, but I want you to have fellowship with the Father and with Jesus. He concludes by saying this, and we're going to look more at this later. He says, therefore... Make our joy complete. There's a direct link here to fellowship with Jesus and one another and joy in our life. So I ask the question, what does fellowship with God look like? Well, fellowship with God just, just looks like we're daily in communion with Him, daily walking with Him, talking to Him. As Paul described it, praying without ceasing, and it doesn't mean we go in our prayer closet 24 hours a day and just sit there and pray, but it means all through the day we're communing with Him, asking questions, God, what do I do in this? Lord, how do I glorify you? God, how do you want me to serve you? God, thank you for this and thank you for that. This morning I was watching my little two-and-a-half-year-old twins run up the sidewalk. They, they love doing it. They, they like to be the first one there to put the button. The, will, the handicap button out here. And I'm watching Asher take off. It's the way Brian runs, like this. <laughs> and little Eleonora running up behind him with that tiny little bottom, man. It's great. Don't think I'm weird, but I just love it. And, and then she's crying, no, Asher, don't push the button. She gets her trigger flipped when she can't be the one to it, Right. And I'm thinking, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for, for the life that you've given me in Christ that I'm able to see this today. God, thank you that, that you've been the glue in, in my marriage and in my family, and certainly not that we're without fault. But Jesus, you've been, you've kept me near you. You've kept me in fellowship with you. And God, now I'm able to enjoy it. It's that, God, and you're so good. That's what fellowship is with him. Fellowship is also in those times where there's not great fellowship here. We had one of those this, last week. Well, maybe you did and I did, Okay. <laughs> I've learned to keep my mouth shut, amen. And I've also learned this. This is a side note. I'm chasing a rabbit. Guys, you never want to win an argument in your marriage. Because if you win the argument, you lose. Can I hear an amen to that? I had all kinds of stuff that I wanted to defend myself in. Oh, yeah, me, I'll tell you about you. I'll tell you later. I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Fellowship is the Holy Spirit saying, quit being a bonehead. You see, the issue is not your fellowship with her. The issue is your fellowship with me. And experiencing his grace to say, God, thank you. That's what it looks like. I want fellowship with Jesus, man. And I want fellowship with you. How do we get that? Jesus. 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 Would you so work in our body? Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.